1: Hey, first thing I got to tell you is this program is not for everybody. Now that's not an invitation. Well, reach over and snap it off then, and don't listen. I'm just pointing out that not everybody is really interested in the truth. So I'm not, you know, I'm not here to give you platitudes. I'm not here to give you Attaboys or otherwise comfortable lies that will make you feel better. I'm here to, uh, I'm here to speak to the honest in heart. I'm here to speak to the humble in spirit. The people who are willing to face hard truths so that they can better understand the world around them as well as what they can be doing to take advantage of whatever influence they have, wherever they happen to be standing. And by take advantage, I mean to use their influence wisely to make the world a better place, not to grab more power and, you know, achieve control over everybody else. Anyhow, if you, uh, if you find yourself intrigued and thinking uh, clearly and independently about what's going on around you, pull up a chair. Find courage, find camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. Our program is made possible by great sponsors like Monticello College dot org, sewing and quilting center dot com, dot com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in Saint George, Utah, and Lifesavingfood.com. Well, there's been a lot of uh, developments over the weekend and over the last few days with the uh, truckers strike. The I, Is it a strike? Is it a protest? Anyway, the, the big truckers rally taking place in Canada. And if you need a clear illustrations of just how unholy the alliance is that politics and big government have, have entered into together. Well, you can look no further than GoFundMe got a great article here from Monica Showalter. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. GoFundMe self-immolates on the back of the Canadian trucker's strike. This story, just, uh, I'll warn you, if if you're on blood pressure medication, you might want to take one or two because this one definitely got my blood pressure up. Big Texan embrace of wokesterism has left it full of idiots, says Monica Showalter. Which brings us to GoFundMe the popular fundraising platform which shut down a $10 million cash haul for the striking Canadian truckers on some kind of political correctness ground, or rather a violation of our terms of service. Now they saw that the bid to help the truckers was very popular. They saw the money roll in. And they could have laughed all the way to the bank on the transaction and platform fees they generate, but instead they chose to shut the whole thing down and even more grotesquely, they declared that the cash-raised would go to a charity of their choosing. That's too bad about, you know, why the donors actually donated it. Well, if you don't uh, ask for a refund and fill out our form, then we're just going to take whatever funds are left. Remember, we're talking $10 million. That's, ain't, that's not chump change. And we'll donate it to what we consider verified and, and, and reasonable charities. So anyone who wanted a refund had to read the, read the fine print about all the hoops they were going to have to jump through to get it and then fill out a lot of forms and wait 10 days before maybe they'd get their cash back. I don't know about you, but that sounds fraudulent to me. Or that, that sounds like theft, straight up. In fact, uh, Monica Showalter says that it sounds like thievery and possibly a scam, After all, it would be really convenient for the pre-selected or selected charities that were set to get the free cash without having bothered to to raise any of it themselves. Here, we took this from someone else, but we think you deserve it. I mean, hey, GoFundMe, that's going to make you popular with those charities. But what about the donors' intent? Well, they learned this is a pretty amazing way to enrage your customers. After all, who would want to donate to a GoFundMe-sponsored event with the knowledge that their cash could be shifted to a more deserving recipient as determined by GoFundMe? Now, this attracted a lot of attention, and I guess here, here's the good news. Elon Musk, who donated considerable cash to the effort, put out a powerful treat about the meaning of this arbitrary specter. And the tweet, someone had tweeted, Elon Musk, hey, get your money back ASAP. And his, his reply was, it's not my money. And he shows a picture of the Los Angeles rail yard. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Where thieves are just literally robbing packages off of containers on trains. There's trash everywhere. It looks like a third world country. So there's the picture of that labeled amateur thieves. And then to the right of it is the logo of GoFundMe and the term professional thieves. And sure enough that take was was heard by a lot of people in fact five state attorneys general from Florida, Georgia, West Virginia, Louisiana and Texas as well as Florida's governor Ron DeSantis all vowed to investigate and prosecute for fraud if their investigations found it. So GoFundMe had to walk it back real easy. Well okay, all right, all right. We'll we'll refund these uh, the money to these donors as a result of the arbitrary shutdown. Once it became known that the AGs could come after them and considerably or do some considerable damage, rather to their bottom line, so the now easy refunds of all those people who donated up to ten million dollars for the truckers could cost GoFundMe about ten to fifteen dollars per canceled transaction. Here's a tweet from Donald Trump Jr. All GOP attorney generals should be looking at this and helping people get their money back so it can be redirected to the truckers. Truckers, rather. Don't let GoFundMe scam you. Call your attorney generals and let them know GoFundMe seems to have no problem funding BLM riots. Peaceful truckers should be fine, too. Which prompted a pile-on. Now even a tech giant presumably would understand the importance of fulfilling contracts and know the industry it was in ought to, and and know the industry that it was in and should know this. It should have made a pile off the Canadian trucker strike fundraising but now it's actually on track to lose money and to have to fight off lawyers from major states. And of course it's lost tremendous future business. So they can refund the cash now but they've done so at a cost of trust and goodwill so the damage is done. At least for GoFundMe. Monica Showalter asks, what is the lesson here? Well, Go woke, get broke, or go broke. Let's try that again. Get woke, go broke. See, it seems all this wokery has caused uh, GoFundMe to lose even all business sense. But this time they're not getting away with it. So let's hope the other shutdown censors take note if they still haven't let all of their brains turn to wokester mush. Again, this is uh, Monica Showalter writing for AmericanThinker.com. I mean, I I saw the news stories over the weekend, or at least I saw people commenting on the news stories and just... It's it's the perfect illustration of how big business and big government play off each other, cooperate with each other, uh, conspire with each other. Huh? What do you think? Should Should we give them a little taste of their own medicine? But man, they seem very desperate. To stop this and of course this was one of the most disturbing parts the the police in ottawa were praising gofundme thank you thank you you know and in fact uh, we well, should be sending us that money to to pay for the costs of, of trying to keep the peace here we're going to be talking a little bit more about some of the weird psychological warfare that's going on regarding this truckers rally i mean facebook has already banned groups from creating a facebook group you know that is in, in the interest of uh, per, perhaps an american truckers protest but in the meantime all these people who sent money in good faith that it would it would help these truckers yeah what a what a crazy thing to do i you know it's it's hard not to feel vindictive and and I don't want to go through life as a vindictive person because that's that's more or less letting another person control your emotions, control, you know, your feelings. I don't want to be that petty. But I do find a certain sense of satisfaction in seeing GoFundMe have to walk this back, in fact, run it back at a quick jog and try to, you know, do some damage control. I mean, it's to me, it's just, it's unconscionable. It's okay. I mean, I can understand if they disagree, but... When people have, have donated money in good faith, you know, but it, just, it sounds like the, the GoFundMe higher-ups are just, they're interested in, we want to support power. Whoever's in power, that's, that's who we're going to support. And I guess it really brings to, to light. This is where, where the clash is. This is the coming collision. The people are standing up to the state. And Canada, as far as, you know, tyranny goes, is a pretty mild one. I mean, it's it's not like they've got people goose-stepping around and, and whatnot, but they have been pretty strict in their enforcement of COVID, you know, tyranny. But the people have had enough. People have lived under that boot long enough. They're standing up and saying, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And, and it cracks me up because it wasn't so long ago that you could see people saying, well, you know, if they're unvaccinated... These people need to suffer. They need to feel the pain. They need to not be able to go anywhere. They need to just feel the pain until they do the right thing. And these are the same people saying, they've been honking for over a week. (laughs) I'm losing my mind. Gee, I hope they're not suffering too much.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: And just like that, we are back. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my sponsors, and it's I'm very proud to have them as a sponsor because I am a believer in self-reliance. And if you look around you and look at some of the instability that is, is spreading throughout our world it's you know I don't think you can prepare for every little thing that goes on and I'm not going to suggest that uh, oh it's possible to avoid consequences you know from from every possible disaster but you can sure do a lot to just shore up your position wherever it may be and to take care of the basics food shelter clothing clean water so why not take advantage of that while you have the opportunity lifesavingfood.com makes it easy 20% discount for anything you order free shipping no sales tax, so they're saving you some money right off the bat. But, boy, it's, it's hard to put a price on the peace of mind that comes from knowing, yeah, if something happens, the power is out, or, you know, there's a, a general strike and the grocery store shelves are empty. Looking more and more like a possibility, by the way. I can take care of it. I can take care of my family. I can take care of myself. I can maybe help my neighbors. That's where real peace of mind is, standing on your own feet. All right, I'm going to spend a little more time here on GoFundMe's robbery of the truck drivers. And this is not so much to beat a dead horse, as to just show how it's further evidence of how cancel culture and censorship are being carried out by the private sector at the politicians' behest. And I know anybody who <clears throat> has been facing, you know, the vaccine mandate and told, you will get the jab or you will not work here. You've had to face a decision, haven't you? You've you've come to the realization that wow, here all this time, you know, my company, I've you know working for them. No matter how loyal I am, they'll they'll take care of me if I do a good job for them and take care of them. And yet, a lot of companies have have flunked this test. Well, sorry, we don't really have a choice. We just have to do whatever the government tells us to do. And this kind of partnership, where where government is explicitly forbidden from interfering, for instance, in people's uh, medical decisions or their freedom of conscience or even their freedom of speech. But when they can coerce through regulatory capture these private companies to, to do the bidding of what this politician or this functionary wants done, we're we're, sky, we're skating onto some very thin ice here. Uh, Ezra Levant, writing for rebelnews.com, says it's so low. It's like stealing someone's money from the poppy fund on Remembrance Day. Last night, this, was, this article is actually published back on uh, February 5th, it says the San Francisco-based crowdfunding site GoFundMe seized $10 million in donation that they had been collecting for the Canadian trucker convoy. Without citing any evidence, GoFundMe claimed the protest was engaged in criminal acts and was an illegal occupation. Now, of course, the truckers are not doing anything illegal. They're peacefully protesting on public property. Now, the front lawn of Parliament is pretty much built for public protests, so honking horns might be irritating, but that's that's not a crime. And the truckers are not an occupation, nor have they been violent in any, any way, despite Justin Trudeau's wild accusations. And how would he know, anyway? Isn't he the guy who bravely fled the city a week ago? Ottawa Police have reported no violence related to the truckers. Police statistics show that crime in the downtown area of the city has actually fallen during the protests. It's political interference by a foreign company meddling in Canadian affairs. And it's also fraud, or at least it was until GoFundMe finally relented, saying they weren't going to uh, they said they weren't going to automatically refund the donations to donors. They were going to give that 10 million to recipients that they trusted instead. And Ezra Levant says, I wonder if that included groups like Black Lives Matter or Greenpeace. And the Canadian establishment's reaction to the GoFundMe highway robbery was jubilation, anything to embarrass or to hurt this working-class rebellion. Even worse, many government officials, including the Ottawa police, publicly pressured GoFundMe to seize the funds and publicly thanked them afterwards. I want to sincerely thank the team at GoFundMe for listening to the plea made by the city and Ottawa police to no longer provide funds to the convoy organizers. That's from Jim Watson in Ottawa. Now this writer, and I think Rebel News is, is out of Canada here, asked, is this how it is now in Canada? Because this sounds more like a banana republic, like, like Trudeau's beloved Cuba. Politicians and police forces pressuring financial institutions into seizing assets from the opposition. That's the sort of thing you'd hear from police states. And it's shocking to see it happen in Canada, and it's depressing to see the cheers from the establishment, including from many journalists. Like a banana republic, they're all on Trudeau's payroll, too, through his media bailout. Well, that that explains a lot then, doesn't it? And even with Aaron O'Toole gone, where were the so-called conservative politicians? Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, called GoFundMe seizure a fraud and announced he would investigate these deceptive practices. And there's the question here. Why were all 119 Canadian conservative members of parliament quiet? And the seven Canadian premiers who claim to be conservative, why aren't they investigating this attempted fraud too? Are they little mini tools So many Canadian checks and balances have been broken. The courts, the media, academia, labor unions, everything. That's the miracle of these trucker convoys. They are beholden to no one, controlled by no one, and therefore cannot be subverted as the other institutions have been. Now, Rebel News from here kind of goes into a little bit of a sales pitch. Look, I believe Rebel News is also free like this. We have no outside owners. It's just me. There's no one who can call us up to call us off. And if they dare try, they know we'd do a huge story about their attempt. YouTube has already tried. They demonetized them last year, cutting off the $400,000 a year they were making in ads. Now, that didn't kill us, he says, but it just forced us to discover other video platforms like Rumble, Odyssey, and SuperU. And it confirmed for us that our future must lie in crowdfunding and in paid subscriptions directly from our viewers. Despite the constant attacks on us by the left and the cold hostility of establishment conservatives like Aaron O'Toole, Doug Ford, and Jason Kenney, we've never been bigger and stronger than we are right now. This trucker rebellion, that's our spirit. Those are our people. And this is our moment to live up to our motto to tell the other side of the story. And I say good for them. So uh, at this point, they they said they have nine... They have reporters, rather, on the ground in nine different locations, all covering the trucker protests in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Milk River, Alberta, Coots, Alberta, Toronto, Ottawa, Quebec City, and even Canberra, Australia. And Ezra Levant says we have seasoned rebels in the field. We also have young journalists, including one in Ottawa doing her first reporting assignment. Rebel News isn't just a news network. It's a kind of practical journalism school for people who reject the woke sameness of the media party. We're convi- compiling all of our Trucker Convoy stories on one website at ConvoyReports.com. I've been asked by a lot of people, where can I get you know good information? And, and for my listeners, um, this, is, this is a link that's provided right there in the story from Rebel News. ConvoyReports.com. You can check it throughout the day. It's being constantly updated. Ezra Levant says, if you believe in what we're doing, if you value the fact that we're in the field, in the cold, telling the truth, please chip in. Unlike the truckers, we don't rely on a third-party crowdfunding company. We do it ourselves, so we're so much harder to cancel. You can chip in on this page. You can even send donations by cryptocurrency, if that's your style. Ezra concludes by saying, Canada and the world are in a terrible place right now, but I truly believe that our work is making a difference. It's letting people know that they aren't alone. It's rebutting the lies of the Trudeau media, and from time to time, we actually get involved to help people too, like the lawyers we're crowdfunding right now to defend the truckers at the Alberta-Montana border. So thank you for your support, and keep on trucking. I really didn't intend to make that a uh, you know an infomercial for Rebel News, but this is one of those places where your support can really make a difference and and this is a chance to put your money where your mouth is or where your ears are as the case may be if you're looking for reliable information you may have to go outside of the status quo and the legacy
0: media if you want to get the truth this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Sometimes I feel like I am really missing the mark here. And it's not because I'm talking about crazy fringe stuff, although to some people it probably feels that way. Sometimes I just wonder, though, am I I doing all that I could do? Because I really don't feel much of that uh, that boot of persecution, at least not not right now. Someone may call me bad names or, you know, otherwise, you know, throw some some accusation at me. But I haven't had people coming after me, you know, the way that uh, other journalists have had people coming after them or commentators. Joe Rogan right now is kind of the epicenter of this, this huge censorship debate. And the most amazing thing about this is, number one, Rogan is, without a doubt, the most listened to podcaster on planet Earth. I mean, before all of this really blew up into, you know, the biggest amount of free publicity that the man has ever seen in his life, he was averaging, I think it was 11 million listens per episode. Every time a new episode of The Joe Rogan Show dropped, you'd get about 11 million people listening. I assume that number is probably higher. By now, probably much higher just because of the notoriety. I can't tell you how many people I've seen posting on Twitter. Hey, I'd never really heard of Joe Rogan or never had an interest in seeing what he was about. But as soon as all the media started going on and on about how this guy is the problem with everything that's going wrong in the world, I had to listen for myself. And that's what human nature is. You know, I'm certainly not on any scale comparable to to Joe Rogan but i can tell you even even at a small market radio scale every time someone protested or boycotted you know because i said something that was you know offensive to them that's i would see my my numbers go up our listening audience grew and in talking with people over the years it's very clear a number of people they weren't interested in me at all until somebody told them wow he's a monster Well, that guy, you ought to stay away from, don't even, don't even think about him because it'll, it'll bring him into your life. (laughs) Okay. And they thought, I got to see, is this guy really as bad as, as what they're telling me? And most of those who tuned in found out, okay, I may be as full of it as a Christmas goose, but still a pretty nice guy. So (laughs) you have that. So here's the question. Why is Rogan so popular? Why do so many people listen to him? And it's not, in in my opinion, it's not because Joe Rogan is sitting there saying, I have all the answers. I'll tell you what to think. I will tell you what to do. He's nowhere near that presumptuous. That's the attitude and that's the approach taken by many within the mainstream media. Everything that you need to know, we will tell you. Now, run along, run along. The grown-ups are in charge here. it's, It's just very condescending. Rogan is a sensation precisely because he is the kind of person who wants to ask questions. And not, you know, gotcha kind of questions, but sincere, probing questions that that delve deeper into topics. You know, I remember starting out in in delving into the world of podcasting and and learning, you know, the sweet spot's about 20 minutes. That's about the, the best you can hope for in terms of keeping people's attention. And yet Rogan will produce episodes three, four hours long. And what makes them worth listening to, and people will sit through all of it, maybe not in one sitting, but they'll consume the whole episode because it takes the time to ask questions and then to let the people respond. And he doesn't have some kind of a litmus test. You have to be this conservative or this woke in order to be on my my program. So what makes Joe Rogan such a sensation right now is that he is facilitating the free flow of information and ideas. This is, you want to talk about what the marketplace, the free market of ideas looks like? That's it. It's conversations without the need to find a winner, you know, or a loser. And that don't fall only within the parameters of what we're told is official, you know, or authorized opinion. And It's terrifying to the people who need to control the narrative, who don't want people thinking about uh, what's happening around them. We need to be just informed enough that, well, I see from the headline what's going on, I don't really need to read any further. Come on, we all know people who are like that. My friend Maury Kessler over at St. George News, that's one of his his favorite laments, and I agree with him. He's a reporter, and he's like, you know, people are just constantly... Well, I didn't read the story, but I saw the headline, so I think I have a pretty good take on this. People like Joe Rogan are opening the door for people to have a better informed opinion, but most importantly, he lets them make up their own minds. And that's a threat to those who need to control the narrative and need to make sure that you are not allowed to consider alternatives to whatever it is they're telling you to believe. I know. Remember when we used to think that kind of stuff was, oh, that's, you know, straight out of the Soviet Union. That's what some commissar would be doing is enforcing, you know, what you can and cannot say. I just watched uh, the show uh, Friends. Uh, was it my friend Anne Frank? Anyway, it's a, it's a Netflix movie. My daughter and I sat and watched that last night. And just marveled at the, the incredible cruelty and totalitarianism of the Third Reich. But that's the same way they approached information. Caught listening to a foreign radio broadcast? Woo, straight to jail for you. Anytime someone says ideas are too dangerous for you to even consider it for yourself, you are not dealing with good people. You're dealing with with controlling evil. And that needs to be avoided. So why do leftists, for instance... Go to censorship as their favorite tactic. Brandon Smith, writing for alt-market.us, says they use censorship because they don't have the guts to engage in fair debate. He says, well, if you ask them, they won't deny their love affair with the memory hole. In fact, most leftists will vehemently defend censorship as absolutely moral because it's for the greater good. And this, their position is basically this. We live in a society and therefore some thoughts and ideas are dangerous and destructive to that society. So those ideas and words must be eliminated from open discussion so we can protect society from itself. But who gets to decide which ideas are dangerous and destructive? And he's right. That's the rub. It's rather convenient that the political left has anointed themselves the pure and objective arbiters of our culture. Purity within leftist groups is measured by expressions of empathy, like virtue signaling, because they are the thought police because somehow they believe they are the most empathetic. A true empathy, of course, is almost impossible to measure in another human being. You could very well be dealing with some narcissist or psychopath who's just very good at pretending that they care and have a conscience. They might say all the right things. They might have all the right opinions in public. But in their private lives, they're malicious. They take pleasure in causing pain in others. Brandon Smith's point here is that humans are utterly fallible, which is why all systems of freedom seek to decentralize power through checks and balances and to avoid mass uh, mass censorship. All systems that value freedom and peace seek to eliminate the existence of the so-called thought police. But now we have leftists and globalists seeking to circumvent checks and balances as well as free speech protections, and they're using a number of different tactics. In much of the Western world, they'll pay lip service to free speech rights when it's convenient for them. But most European nations and countries like Australia, they have no legitimate constitutional measures that restrict government from easily initiating speech suppression laws whenever they want. And the draconian restrictions put in place over COVID have proven that beyond a doubt. This is what makes the U.S. so unique as a culture. It's the reason why leftists have pursued other methods to silence dissent. So in America, the left has partnered with the corporate world and is attempting to use business rights as a means to attack and diminish conservative voices. That is to say, they think that if they can harass and pressure a business to deplatform their opposition, then this is a technically legal tactic because a business has a right to associate or not associate with whomever they choose. If the power of government cannot be used to muzzle their opponents, well, then the power of corporations and big tech can be just as effective. But he reminds us, those, most of these big tech corporations are not private businesses because they rely heavily on government subsidies and tax incentives in order to survive. If Google had to pay for the massive amount of bandwidth that it's used in the last decade, well, they would have gone out of business a long time ago. But with federal government incentives, Google is given an immense advantage over its competition. And in terms of state subsidies, companies like Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook rake in billions. Now, that's your tax dollars going into the pockets of the same corporations that claim they have the right to censor you for your political views. So if they want to censor the public, then we should take away all the subsidies and tax dollars. It's that simple. We can let those companies implode without our money to support them. I'm going to come back to this in a few moments. This is again Brandon Smith writing for alt-market.us. There is a link in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com Hit that subscribe button. I'll send you a copy of my show notes every day that I do the program.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Just want to give a quick shout out here to the wonderful sponsors who make this program possible, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, you have uh, seen for yourself just how wild the real estate market is. Homes do not stay on the market for a long time. What this means is the competition is very fierce when it comes to buying a home. You don't have time to spare. You need to have your financing in order. And Heather Turner... And her team at Patriot Home Mortgage, they're the ones you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. You can reach out and call her at 435-703-4522. You can stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article from Brandon Smith who writes for alt-market.us. Leftists use mass censorship because they don't have the guts to engage in a fair debate, and I think you'll see this a little bit on the right. But right now, the ones who control most of these institutions, like academia, media, and uh, and it, you know, at current uh, the current moment in politics, it's it's very left leaning ideology, and they work very hard to suppress points of view that would offer people an author- alternative. Path, pathway of thought, you know, that uh, would allow them to think for themselves. I know it sounds almost cartoonish in some ways, right? You know, the evil liberals, uh, the evil, you know, leftists twirling their snidely whiplash mustache and cackling over how we're controlling the masses. But look at how cancel culture is going after people. Look at how censorship is being used at every possible turn. And the bright side is it's brought some really neat alternatives forward. But it's also really creepy to see the the effort to try to shut up and, and silence people whose points of view don't coincide with whomever happens to be running with the powers that be. Brandon Smith says, we've seen big tech and social media companies silence tens of thousands of conservatives over the past few years. He says the whole time these companies in the media have denied that they specifically target people on the political right, which these days means anyone to the right of full-bore communism and globalism. And this gaslighting has been debunked over and over again. It's undeniable that conservatives are far more likely to be blocked or banned from social media than people who express leftist views. Once confronted with the data that proves big tech is biased in favor of the left, they'll switch gears to the same old circular argument. Well, conservatives are banned more from social media because they're always the people posting dangerous and destructive ideas. So we're right back where we started. So Brandon Smith says, let's just establish some basic facts here before moving forward in order to avoid any misunderstandings about the left. Fact one, leftists are rabidly pro censorship. This is not up for debate. As the leftist New York Times argued in 2019, free speech is killing us, specifically in reference to conservative speech. Now, they will say conservatives do the same thing, and this is simply not true. We are living, we're living—we're not living in the America of the 1960s, when religious suppression of language was prominent. We are living in the America of the 2020s, where leftists have insinuated their own bizarre cult of Puritanism into U.S. life, and are viciously seeking to silence anyone that disagrees with them. Fact two, leftist censorship almost always aligns with the policies and desires of establishment elites. It's a mistake to assume that corporations are being bullied by the left. On the contrary, corporate elites and globalist foundations are the people influencing leftist activists and molding social justice movements to serve establishment interests. Look into the background of any social justice warrior movement And you'll find hundreds of millions of dollars in funding from the Ford Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and so on. Leftists take their marching orders from the corporate elites. Why are leftists so aggressively pro-vax mandate, for example? Because the establishment media told them they must be. When Trump was in office and the media was anti-vax, leftists were mostly anti-vax. When Biden entered the White House, the media became militantly pro-vax And so did the majority of leftists. They have no individual autonomy and no original thoughts. They're a hive mind waiting around for the establishment to tell them what to think. Fact three, leftists believe the ends justify the means no matter the consequence. And they view contrary facts and evidence with disdain. You will almost never see a leftist argue on the basis of merit, logic, or results They will always argue based on emotional justification, righteous indignation, and the projection that anyone that disagrees with them must be a terrible or evil person that has malicious intent. this is why their go-to attacks are consistently personal. They use accusations of bigotry, racism, sexism, etc. in order to avoid discussions on facts and evidence. Because if facts and evidence are being presented by a literal Nazi, then all of those facts become null and void, and the person can be ignored. Fact number four, leftists believe the mob is the law, and all other laws and principles must be subservient to the dictates of the majority. Leftists are obsessed with majority rule, and obsessed with manufacturing consent by manufacturing a false consensus. In other words, leftists think if they can trick or coerce 51% of the population to think the way they do, well, then they've won, and all their actions are sacrosanct by virtue of the majority. They actually believe the other 49% of the population must submit to their dictates because the majority is God. In truth, the mob is almost always wrong, and the majority has a tendency to be the lowest common denominator and the most ignorant within a society. If they can't obtain the precious 51% of the population, then they'll try to pretend as if they're the majority anyway. They'll use coordinated mob attacks on their opponents to make it appear as if millions of people are against them when the mob is actually only in the hundreds or maybe the thousands. Exposure of their true numbers is like kryptonite to leftists. They'd rather disband than admit being in a tiny minority. And they'll respond by claiming the group never existed or it's a figment of conservative paranoia. Or in the case of Antifa, it's just an idea. Fact number five, if leftists could rule at the barrel of a gun, they would. Leftists are absolutely in favor of imprisoning political opponents and anyone that speaks against them, and many of them openly apply the, applaud the idea of murdering conservatives because of their ideals. Just look at how they defended the Waukesha mass killing by a BLM activist as karma for the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. There is no such thing as a peaceful end game for the political left. The violent direction their ideology is traveling is obvious. But what is all the subversion and chicanery meant to accomplish? Why not confront their opponents directly instead of using subterfuge? The answer is because they're afraid. They're terrified of legitimate debate on fair ground based on reality instead of emotional fantasy. And they will do anything to avoid direct confrontation because they know they will lose. Their common tactics include subversion, bait and switch, ambushes, and always choosing the ground that a confrontation takes place so they can control the debate and shut down their opponents whenever they start losing. Now, he says, this doesn't mean that I think every website and platform out there is that's supposed to exist with no rules and no restrictions. That's impossible by the fact that trolls and saboteurs exist. But leftists don't engage in case-by-case censorship. They rely on mass censorship and enormous corporate partners to strong-arm people. They aren't interested in an honest disagreement with a respectful platform user. They're interested in silencing everyone that can disagree regardless. Now, he says, I can't help it once again. Use the example of the leftist jihad against Joe Rogan to illustrate my point. The left hates Rogan because he allows both political sides to have a voice on his show. And his show is bigger than anything the leftists and mainstream media can hope to achieve. Leftists believe that if they cannot control something, then they must destroy it. An open platform that treats conservatives and their views fairly cannot be allowed to exist. So Rogan becomes a top target of the political left. Rogan is targeted over his position on the COVID pandemic and vaccine mandates. But these are merely vehicles that leftists think they can use to rationalize the mass censorship that they wanted long before the pandemic was a thing. They believe the argument that millions of lives are at risk supplants all other debate. That is to say, the more people that die from COVID, the happier they are because these bodies can be used as fuel to push their ideological cult toward greater power. But the interesting thing about COVID is it turns out to be a not very effective vehicle for the leftists in terms of using bodies to buy control. Now, he goes into vaccines and he goes into the the big lies that have been told about, uh, you know, the misinformation and disinformation that Joe Rogan allegedly is is spreading. But he says, to summarize, vaccines are pointless. The vax mandates are criminal. Leftists cannot defend either one, either on scientific or on moral grounds. So their only option is to silence anyone who has the guts to talk about the truth. He says they're weaklings with no reason in their heads, and these are the type of people that always turn to mass censorship as a tool To legitimize their ideology Our mission is to avoid being brainwashed Or sucked in by that
0: ideology And to continue to speak the truth No matter what This is The Brian Hyde Show A trusted voice of truth and light God gave me a gift I shovel well I shovel very well and a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny, and it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and
1: welcome to the show. I don't know why you have tuned in, but I'm glad you did. It's uh, it's possible you are a person who revels in wrongthink, which is kind of the unofficial motto of this show. I don't like being told what to do by people who are sure that they understand the world better than me and therefore have the right to tell me, you know, what uh, my prerogatives are or are not. But uh, I want people to think clearly and independently. I'm willing to practice what I preach. I'm inviting you to do the same, not because I have all the answers, but because, damn it, you're a free person. (laughs) You need to start acting like one. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, and, and monticellocollege.org. I know there's been a lot of interest in the, the trucker protest, the convoy, the rally. I don't even know what to call it. The, the, the thing that's terrifying Canadians, you know, and, and causing especially members of their government to freak out because the normally agreeable Canadian people have reached the breaking point. And are tired of the COVID tyranny. And it was a vax mandate that, that put this whole thing into motion. And I know it's hard to keep up with everything. And you've probably followed this somewhat close. But there are people trying to, to get their minds around what exactly has been going on in Canada. And I, w- I like to visit the Lou Rockwell site every day. This has been kind of a daily routine for me for well over 20 years now. L E W Rockwell.com. And Lou Rockwell himself actually has a great summary of the Canadian truckers' battle against COVID tyranny. So I offer this in the spirit of just kind of a recap of what has happened to bring us to this point. You know, there's still a very fluid situation. There's a lot developing. But uh, the people are squaring off against the government, not because the people are looking for violence, but because they are just sick and tired of being dominated and bullied into doing things that may or may not be in their best interest. Things that are not government's call to make. And the people in positions of power seem incensed. that You're you're not obeying me? You're not just, you know, snapping to when I tell you to do something and looking at me with a sense of reverence and awe? Now the people are getting pretty frustrated and they're putting their foot down and saying, enough. Lou Rockwell says, The tin pot dictator, Justin Trudeau, thought he could extend his regime of COVID tyranny, but a massive number of Canadian truckers have defied him. They have a good chance of forcing him to back down and maybe toppling his government as well. Aidan Tate tells us what happened. It was on January 15th that the Canadian government decided they needed to impose a jab mandate over Canadian truckers, claiming that man no longer had a right to his own body, but that his body instead belonged to the state. And so Canadian truckers organized, creating the Freedom Convoy. Now, this massive caravan have, may very well have set a world record, as it's estimated that 50,000 trucks have joined with it. Now, that's trucks, not truckers. The January 15th Royal Decree has stated that Canadian truckers who do not have the jabawaki Jaco- the in their body will be forced by Canada to undergo a two-week quarantine period should they traverse the Canadian-American border. Washington, D.C. issued a similar demand on July 22nd, I'm sorry, January 22nd, when the post-9-11 U.S. Department of Homeland Security decided Canadian truckers had to be fully jabbed should they enter American soil. Now, both of these decrees, when enforced by those who do not understand what their respective countries truly stand for, would result in thousands of men losing their ability to provide a paycheck for their families. In other words, to put bread on the table. And the Canadian truckers are not alone, it seems. Reports are surfacing of thousands of American truckers all traveling up to Canada to join the fray. The caravan is heading towards Ottawa, where it intends to turn the city into the largest truck stop of all time. Canadian mainstream media has been downplaying the extent of this convoy, and there are even reports surfacing that the live camera feeds the public can normally watch online of Canadian highways have been shut down. Naturally, the Trudeau dictatorship is battling against the truckers, but the public supports them and has donated millions of dollars to help their cause. The Last Refuge offers details. The fundraiser for the effort now exceeds $5.5 million and still climbing. By the way, that's in the matter, a matter of a couple of days. That $10 million that was suspended by GoFundMe, that took about three weeks to reach. It's now estimated that over 50,000 vehicles are participating in the convoy effort. And the Canadian Department of Transportation is doing everything possible to stop, block, and impede the assemblies. Every federal truck stop and DOT wait station has been opened. Every truck is being required to go through Department of Transportation checks. And this is not accidental. The movement has now evolved into a conflict of the average Canadian represented by the truckers versus the oppressive government represented by the activated federal agencies of Prime Minister Trudeau. It really has become an incredible example of the people versus the government. Now, Lou Rockwell writes, the truck convoy started from British Columbia in the west, Newfoundland in the east, and Windsor, Ontario in the south. However, cars, SUVs, vans, small commercial trucks are now included in the massive convoy lines and joined with the big rigs. On every highway along the way, the crowds are cheering and waving support for the truckers. Aerial views show some of the context for how massive these convoys convoys are that are converging on Ottawa. It's widely estimated that if it gets there on time, the convoy holds together as it has in British Columbia, Saskatchewan and Alberta. It could be 10 times longer than the world record for the longest convoy in history. I think that is a fact now, not just a possibility. And Lou points out the leftist media doesn't like these protests. GoFundMe suspended fundraising for the truckers after $10 million was raised. With the multi-million dollar Freedom Convoy fundraiser now in suspended animation, some donors are reporting receiving refunds from GoFundMe. Last Wednesday evening, February 3rd, GoFundMe placed the fundraiser, which has raised at least $10 million in just a few weeks, under an official review. This fundraiser is currently paused and under review to ensure it complies with our terms of service and applicable laws and regulations. Read the message that appeared on the fundraiser's GoFundMe page. Our team is working 24-7 and doing all we can to protect both donors and organizers. Yeah, protect. Put that in air quotes. A statement released by GoFundMe that evening implies the crowdfunding platform's position on the convoy evolved as truckers and their supporters converged for their planned Ottawa rally back on January 29th. Justin Kenney, the Prime Minister of Alberta, isn't happy about the protests either. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney says a truck convoy that's blockaded a highway at a busy U.S. border crossing is part of a protest against vaccine mandates, violates the province's Traffic Safety Act, and must end immediately. Is that why they sent a SWAT team there? The Canadian Border Services Agency says the U.S. border crossing at Coutts, Alberta, has remained open despite the blockade on Highway 4, but the RCMP say only foot traffic is able to get through. I think this is Kenny they're quoting here. As I said last week, Canadians have a democratic right to engage in lawful protests. I urge those involved in this truck convoy protest to do so as safely as possible and not to create road hazards, which could lead to accidents or unsafe conditions for other drivers. That was a statement from a week ago Sunday when he was in a National Governors Association meeting in Washington, D.C. Now, Lou Rockwell points out, Kenny is upset at blocked highways. But Canada's government's totalitarian measures to destroy the Canadian economy through lockdowns, vaccine mandates and travel restrictions, they don't seem to bother him. And Trudeau responded to the truckers in the way you would expect. He and his ilk are totalitarians and fascists, but they project their own attitudes onto their opponents. In Orwellian fashion, if you want freedom, well, that makes you a racist and a fascist. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada Monday lashed out at protests against pandemic restrictions over the weekend in Ottawa, chastising demonstrators for desecrating war memorials, wielding Nazi symbols, and stealing food from the homeless. The protest was a culmination of a group of Canadian truckers and their supporters who drove from Western Canada to Ottawa, challenging government vaccine mandates. Speaking from self-isolation, after he and two of his children tested positive for the coronavirus, Mr. Trudeau said he understood the frustrations of Canadians, exasperated by a pandemic that's taken a heavy toll, but he criticized the protesters for flying what he called racist flags, hurling abuse at small business owners, spreading disinformation, and in one case, he claims going to a homeless shelter in downtown Ottawa and demanding food. There is no place in our country for threats, violence, or hatred unless it comes from government, apparently, adding that the convoy was not representative of a majority of truckers. Now, Lou Rockwell says, contrary to Trudeau's lies, rather, the Canadian truckers are splendid in their struggle against COVID tyranny. Had to do some driving over the weekend. And I don't know if it's just me, but uh, I had a a little... uh, little warm place in my heart for every one of those big rigs I saw out on the road even though they weren't protesting I just kind of felt like good for them <laughs> and I hope that if we see a similar protest here we see similar levels of support
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome
1: back to the show. This is a quick shout-out for one of my sponsors. That would be Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This is the place to go if you have anyone in your household who either loves or wants to become more involved in sewing or embroidery or long-arm quilting, anything of the of the sort... This is a go-to place to get the machines, the supplies, the training, and, of course, the service to keep them going for generations. It's a wonderful family-owned business. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. The shop was started back in 1984 and has been faithfully serving St. George and surrounding community since that time. I know, if, if you've never so much as sewed a soda button on yourself, it can be hard to appreciate, you know, what, what really great sewing skills can do, but the sky's the limit with the help of um, St. George, with the help of the sewing and quilting center in St. George, go to the link that I provide in my show notes at com. There's a link to their website. Stop in and see them. If you're in St. George, Utah, take advantage of uh, one of the best family owned businesses. I shouldn't say take advantage, advantage yourself <laughs> by seeing them and, uh, Learning the ropes. They'll be happy to teach you. And be sure to mention, you heard me talking about them. Tell them the reason I'm here is because Brian says you guys are the best. So here's an interesting thought. How old were you when you were allowed to play outdoors without any adult watching over you? I actually saw this come up in a, in a poll last week, and, and Lenore Skenazy was the one asking the question. This was on Twitter. This is a follow-up column that she wrote about how kids keep getting their freedom later. She says, on Twitter last week, I asked those born before 1982 and those born after to tell us what age they were first allowed outside to do things like walk to school or to a friend's place, you know, without any adult supervision. And she says, yes, I goofed. If you were born in 1982, you basically don't exist. No poll for you. That's what I get for not learning statistics in grad school or even grade school. Sorry. But meantime, she says, here's what I learned. Whether born or whether born before or after 1982 and possibly those born in 1982, we'll never know. Most kids were allowed out and about by age six or seven. Now, the bad news, well, about 82% of folks ages 40 and above were out of the house and on their own by age seven, meaning able to go outside and play, you know, on their own. That number plummets by 20% among those younger than age 40. For them, 62% were outside on their own by age 7. The other bad news? Well, it's the number of kids not allowed outside till age 10 or 11 keeps growing. It was about 4%, but in the Younger People poll, it's actually now about 14%. So, is there good news about the bad news? Well, yes. Lenore Scanesi says we still live in a country where being out and about by age seven is or was the norm for the majority of people, young and old. So cases where parents are harassed or even investigated for letting their kids venture forth around first or second grade are really out of line. I do understand that the folks who answer polls found on the Let Grow or Free, Free Range Kids Twitter feeds, two organizations dedicated to childhood independence, aren't necessarily uber-representative of the population. But over 1,500 people did take the poll, and that's a pretty decent sample number. Now, those results mean that some places, like some Virginia districts where local ordinances say, quote, eight years and younger should always be in the care of a responsible person. Children this age should not be left unsupervised anywhere, homes, cars, playgrounds, yards, etc. End quote. Those ordinances are not reality-based. Come on, kids can't even play in their own yard unsupervised until they're nine? That would make criminals out of the majority of people who took the Twitter poll. And what of a 10-year-old allowed outside who wants to play with her 6-year-old sister? Does the kid sis have to watch from the living room? Is the parent guilty for allowing her kids to frolic together without a security detail? Her point is, laws and policies that reflect a worst-first mentality cannot be allowed to stand. That worst-first mentality is anything that could go, anything could go wrong, so let's forbid it, right? This is that hyper-cult of protection. And she says, imagine if adults were only allowed to drive at five miles an hour because anything else is too dangerous. The worst-first mentality, especially when it comes to child-rearing, stunts children's development and criminalizes parents who make rational decisions about what they let their kids do. Declaring no eight-year-olds outside, that doesn't make kids safer. Why is it better for them to be inside, surrounded by screens and solid food and steps, all the other things that could hurt kids, versus outside? In fact, she links to some stats on kids choking and falling downstairs versus stranger danger. Once you look at those stats, you'll probably shoot your kids outside without solid food this instant. Now, Lenore Skenazy says, as you know, at Let Grow, we're working to make sure that neglect laws don't say anything like children must always be properly supervised. That's just too amorphous. Who decides on what's proper? Random passerby? Individual caseworkers? She says, we want laws to specify that parents who put their children in obvious and likely danger are guilty of neglect. Not parents who decide that their kids are ready to go outside like they did. So this year in Colorado, Nebraska, and South Carolina, reasonable childhood independence bills will be voted on. And she actually provides a link. If you live in one of those states and want to get involved, you can do so. But in the meantime, she says, there is a group I would like to apologize to, and that's anyone born in 1982 left out of her poll. Now, go outside. You know, eight years of age seems to be kind of a, a good thing Rule of thumb, I think, for a lot of people. Part of this has to do with, at least in the Intermountain West where I live, uh, there's a very strong Mormon culture and uh, Mormons believe in something called the age of accountability. And in a nutshell, what that means is by age eight, you should be able to determine right from wrong. And, you know, it's, it's a loose rule of thumb. It's not like, okay, age eight, you know, your bags are packed and on the doorstep. Good luck with your life. It's not like you're kicking them out in the world. But that's, that's when a, a kid has enough <clears throat> experience as well as enough autonomy to make the kinds of decisions, you know, for themselves between right and wrong. So I don't disagree with that. In, in our family, we had a little bit of a tradition in that on your eighth birthday, you were presented with a bike. Mine was a beautiful metallic red Schwinn Stingray. Dang, I still remember walking into the house and seeing that thing sitting in the front room and just, oh, it is so gorgeous. But with that bike was kind of the the tacit admission on the part of my parents of, you're old enough, you know right from wrong, here's a bike, and with it came the mobility and uh, the encouragement, go out and explore the neighborhood. And I rode that thing all over my East Salt Lake neighborhood of Holiday. Now, granted, you know it's just you know residential streets and whatnot. I wasn't riding on busy highways or anything like that. But I look at I look at the the kind of free reign that my parents gave me, and I think I I understand why the numbers are 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 getting to where kids are getting their freedom later and later. Because I don't think I had that same kind of confidence as I was raising my kids. I was more you know well now. You know, who's going to be providing overwatch and who's have we briefed the security detail about the kids going to the park? Of course, it's gotten easier. You know, kids, a lot of kids have cell phones or other digital devices that make it easy for them to stay in touch. But, you know, about age eight, a kid should be able to get out there and explore again within reason. Every situation is going to be a little bit different. Every kid is a little bit different. Some kids at age five are, you know, quite responsible, like remarkably responsible. Some kids at age 12, you know, you wouldn't trust them, you know, farther than the front step. Anyway, I appreciate the work that Lenore Skenazy is doing. I think she's right. This is not the time to criminalize parents who have figured out that their kids are big enough to start making some decisions and exercising their autonomy. Truth be told, if you want to live in a free society... I think you'd want to encourage people to start building that sense of autonomy as early as possible.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I hope you'll take the time to look over my sponsor links in my show notes at BrianHideshow.com. If you have need for the services or the products offered by my sponsors, please do business with them. Let them know when you, when you make your payment or when you uh, give them feedback. Let them know. I came here because Brian pointed me in your direction, just so that they know their message is reaching your ears. I do what I do with an eye towards trying to promote a greater awareness of the world around us, better understanding, more clear and independent thinking. But I also do this with an understanding that I want to create less conflict or at least not bring more anger into the situation than there already is. And sometimes that seems like a very uphill thing, a very, a dis, a very difficult task. Because in order to discuss some of these things, I'm going to be touching on subjects that make people uncomfortable or that they're just going to flat out disagree with me on. See, and I'm okay with that. I, I came to grips with this. My skin thickened up over the years to where it's okay. If someone disagrees, even if they really strongly disagree, that's not, you know, well, then that's the call to arms. And it just brings to mind that, you know, disagreement without conflict is tough. But it's certainly not impossible, and it's a skill that I've been working on over the last few years, and I encourage my listeners, develop that skill to where someone can disagree with you, and you can still talk about things that matter, but you can do it without being disagreeable. In fact, Sheldon Richman, in a piece published on everythingvoluntary.com, has a really great take on how to win people to the side of freedom, but without creating more conflict. He says, I'll admit it, I'm a natural rights guy. I think you can get to individual rights, including the right to property, from within the ancient Greek eudaimonist uh, virtue ethics and Spinoza's tradition. But he says, here's a separate point. Rights talk may not be the best way to bring unconvinced people over to the libertarian view of the good society. Heresy? Well, he says, I hope not. So he links to an interview with uh, Chandran Kuthak, Kukathos author of The Liberal Archipelago, that got him thinking about this subject. He says, Kukathos who I've written about here and here, and there's a couple links there, starts with what ought to be obvious to everyone. People disagree about all kinds of things. As he writes in his book, quote, In a world of moral and cultural diversity, one of the subjects over which there is dispute and even conflict is the subject of justice. Different people or groups or communities have different views or conceptions of justice in these circumstances, the question is, how can people live together freely when there's this sort of moral diversity? End quote. Now, Sheldon Richmond says even when they agree on ends, they often disagree about the means to those ends. Disagreement is here, has always been here, and it ain't going anywhere. So what, you ask? Well, what does that have to do with winning adherence to the libertarian view of the good society? And the answer is, it has a lot to do with it. Much modern libertarian thinking has been shaped by theorists who at least implied that the way to a free society is to get widespread, if not universal, agreement about rights and hence justice. In other words, assent to a libertarian law code deduced from the non-aggression principle. Now, some even think the agreement must extend to other philosophical matters like metaphysics or epistemology or ethics or aesthetics. He says, as a libertarian, I came up long ago in that tradition but now I wonder about its strategic, but not its truth value. If disagreement is and will be ubiquitous, how in hell can we hope for widespread agreement on a detailed code of law or rights theory? He says we can't hope for that, and we should stop acting as though we can because it looks to be a time waster. It's been tried, so we must learn there are no magic words to do the trick. Now, does that leave us in despair? Have we no hope for liberty? Maybe not. Chandran Kukathas gives us reason to hope. Since broad disagreement is not going away, Sheldon Richmond says the most we can work for is an environment characterized as disagreement without conflict. Now, he says, I'm not a utopian. Conflict isn't going anywhere either, but it can be minimized through liberal institutions based on freedom of association within the current national territories. The live and let live principle, which would not require territory-wide agreement to a detailed doctrine. In other words, if we can't get universal agreement to a code of justice, how about to the principle of mutual toleration? Now, he says, in this age of extreme and acrimonious polarization, doesn't that sound like a strategic approach worth pursuing? If no monopoly state is available, Group A won't have to live in fear that Group B will seize it and impose its preferences. And thus, Group A won't have to seize the state apparatus first in self-defense that pretty well describes the political process i see around us right now elections don't seem to be so much about uh, we need good governance or we need wise leadership instead it's more about hey we got to get the we got to get our hands on power so that we can do unto others before they do unto us and of course the other side feels that way as well and it seems like a really vicious cycle you've noticed the whiplash effect that's going back and forth Everything that Joe Biden did from the moment he took office was calculated to thumb his nose and to, to blunt everything that Donald Trump had done. And a lot of what Trump had done was to blunt, you know, the things that had been done by his predecessors. But the swinging back and forth of that pendulum is getting more and more violent. I surely can't be the only one who's who's sensing this. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Sheldon Richmond says, some may object to putting rights talk on the shelf in favor of something less pure. They may insist that in America, the home of the Declaration of Independence, with its stirring lines about inalienable rights that predate government, rights talk resonates as it does nowhere else. And he says, well, that was my first thought. But he says, then I remembered how the list of things that Americans are said to have a right to has grown exponentially over the decades. No one's been able to find the right incantation to stop, much less reverse that growth. And He's talking negative rights, ones that actually create deeper obligations to government and put more government power over you than uh, reducing government's power over you. He says, believe me, many people have tried to reverse that growth, but once you give flight to even legitimate uh, rights talk, you have no control over where it goes and what form it takes. Once counterfeit rights gain currency, we enter the realm of rights balancing it. Guess who's in charge of that? So as Kukathas writes in the liberal archipelago, the primary question of politics is not about justice or rights, but about power. Who may have it and what may be done with it? Views about rights or justice may have significant bearing on any answer to this question, but this remains the important question. Now, as a consequence, Koukathus continues, the principles of a free society describe not a hierarchy of superior and subordinate authorities, but an archipelago of competing and overlapping jurisdictions. Now, this is an extremely important uh, adjective, the overlapping part, because it indicates that authorities do not have monopolies even within their territories, suggesting more of a polycentric approach to law and governance. Koukathis clearly does not buy James Madison's famous line in Federalist 51. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next oblige, next oblige it to control itself. In the next place, oblige it to control itself. Sorry, I needed to get that quote correct. Thus, those who value liberty must cultivate a distrust of power of all kinds. Kukathas says in the interview that the government is always a they, that, co us on a regular basis and never a we. In a free society, only the freedom to associate is fundamental. The freedom of exit, of course, is the corollary. And as you might expect, Kukathas challenges the conventional view of what even constitutes the good society. He's skeptical about the need for social unity, suggesting it's not nearly as important as has been intimated. On the contrary, the good society is not something confined by the boundaries needed to make it one. Political authority is necessary in any good society, but political authority should be understood as something which has a place in the good society rather than something which circumscribes it. So in opposition to the body politic metaphor, Kokathis offers a metaphor of society as an archipelago of different communities operating in a sea of mutual toleration. The liberal archipelago is a society of, of societies in which neither the creation nor the control of any single, the, nor the object of control is of any single authority, though it is a form of order in which authorities function under laws which are themselves beyond the reach of any singular power. I'm trying to think of a less complicated way to say that, but I think it would simply be what if you had competing authorities. And I don't mean competing with each other like, you know, we want to take over for you, but competing in the sense that you could choose which authority you wanted to live under. You could voluntarily say, no, I like their system better. That's where I'm going to go. That's what's meant by polycentrism. Gonna come back to this commentary in just a few moments again. I have a link in the show notes at the BrianHydeshow dot com if you want to check this out. Sheldon Richmond in a piece published on everythingvoluntary.com disagreement without conflict the one thing that i do see that he's very consistent with libertarian thinking is take force take coercion off the table and you're probably going to get a better result than when you're trying to use it to affect change or to affect allegiance
0: this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the
1: show. Just touching briefly again on this article from Sheldon Richmond about disagreement without conflict. He is citing uh, this, this author, Kukathis, offering a metaphor of society as an archipelago of different communities operating in a sea of mutual toleration. And some of his his, uh, thinking is a little bit tough to follow. Maybe it's just that my brain isn't, you know, working like it should. But the idea is the liberal archipelago is a society of societies, which is neither the creation nor the object of control of any single authority, though it is a form of order in which authorities function under laws which are themselves beyond the reach of any singular power. And importantly, he adds, implicit in this is a rejection of nationalism, And of the idea that we should start with the assumption that the nation state is the society, which is properly the object of concern when we ask what is a free society. So, summing up in the interview, Kukata says, having asked how can a diversity of people live together freely given their differences? He says, my theory asserts that the answer lies in the way that authority is allocated. More particularly, it argues that in a free society, that is to say a liberal society, there will be a multiplicity of authorities, each independent of the others and sustained by the acquiescence of its subjects. A liberal society is marked by respect for the independence of other authorities and a reluctance to intervene in their affairs. Now, Sheldon Richmond says that reluctance would be reinforced by the fact that people who might like to control other people's peaceful conduct would have to pay out of pocket for the pleasure. They would not be able to socialize the cost by imposing it on a large number of otherwise indifferent taxpayers. And the more something costs, the less people tend to buy. Call it libertarianism by default, but he says that seems like a vision that could win wide assent. Well, at the very least, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thought. All right. In our final moments here, in this uh, in this part of the show, I want to talk a little bit about why I can't trust politicians and functionaries to tell the truth. And it, I felt this way for a long time. I mean, there was a time when I still had some <clears throat> lingering trust for my government, but no more. I mean, if, and this sounds like, if this sounds like something a fringe extremist might say, I get it. But if if a politician or some functionary tells me, Brian, the sun is shining. I would have to look outside. I'd have to go out and see it myself to believe them. And the U.S. government's recent claims about Russia gearing up for a false flag operation in Ukraine, very hard to take at face value. And in fact, um, I'm going to share with you a story. Uh, This is from Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute. We have good reason to doubt the official story. He says it's so rare to see an actual journalist rather than a regime stenographer in the U.S. mainstream media that there really needs to be a federal endangered species protection designation. In this case, it would be from AP's Matt Lee, their diplomatic affairs correspondent who's been around the block many times and whose reputation is that he takes no crap from flax regardless of party. Imagine that. So last week, in a State Department brief, spokesman Ned Price was given the unenviable task of dressing up the administration's latest offering of bovine excrement and selling it as a gourmet dip. At issue was a leaked story in the Washington Post that Russia is planning an elaborate video fabrication of a Ukrainian attack on eastern Ukraine to serve as a false flag to justify a Russian incursion into Ukraine. Now, this after a month or so of the U.S. administration insisting that a Russian invasion of Ukraine was imminent. And it was a claim dramatically refuted by none other than the one political leader who on paper would benefit most from such a narrative. The Ukrainian president himself, who told Biden on a phone call to go take his meds and stop fear-mongering about a Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, a new threat needs to be cooked up in the bowels of Foggy Bottom and Langley. Enter Ned Price from the State Department, who had the thankless task of selling that hollow narrative that U.S. intelligence had uncovered a fantastical plot by the Russians to bring in crisis actors and fake bodies to sell a false narrative to justify their no longer imminent Invasion of Ukraine. Now, the whole thing is reminiscent of the Obama administration's absurd suggestion that the attack on the US CIA installation in Benghazi, Libya, was motivated by a laughable anti Muslim video instead of a US arms deal gone wrong, as Senator Paul uncovered. Price's pathetic talking point was this. We are declassifying intelligence information that Russia is about to release a fake video of a Ukrainian attack on Donbas as a false flag to open the door to Russian involvement. Here's a summary of what followed. AP's Matt Lee replied with a question any normal journalist would ask before our current era. Okay, but what evidence do you have that this is indeed the case? Ned answers, well, that's it. My declassified claim that Russia is about to do it. Matt Lee responds, well that's not declassified information, that's just you claiming it. Surely you understand the difference. I mean, crisis actors, fake bodies, that's Alex Jones territory. To which Ned said, you are a Russian propagandist. You really should watch the video and it's it's linked in the story which I will include in my show notes, but you want to talk about somebody coming apart like a soup sandwich? Matt Lee is that somebody and it's it's painful and also kind of satisfying to watch, if nothing else, just to see that, well, if you ever wondered, can I, can I justify my doubts in the official version, this is a good reason why. Now, Daniel McAdams says, look, this is the Reader's Digest version, but essentially, this is what took place in that extraordinary State Department briefing. The U.S. government's position is if you ask for any evidence of a U.S. government claim, you are a Putin agent. crazy. Now, Caitlin Johnstone also perfectly captured the absurdity of Biden's claims in this thread by sending out a tweet saying, I'm declassifying evidence that Nigeria is planning a false flag operation in Switzerland. Are you ready? Here it is. Nigeria is planning a false flag operation in Switzerland. Now the evidence is me asserting it. And if you doubt this evidence, well, you're a propagandist for Nigeria. She actually has an excellent column on that. But as the bipartisan support for bovine excrement continues to pollute the barnyard, at least uh, Daniel McAdams says we can thank Matt Lee from otherwise odious Associated Press for refusing to thrust his chip into the Biden dip. Look, I, maybe it's too broad to say that, uh, you know, you can't trust anything your government is saying. But I got to ask you to just think back. For, for a couple of different items, look at look at the way that the COVID numbers were cooked. Look at the way that they were spun. Look at the way we were told. Well, you don't need to wear a mask, but now you need to wear a mask. Now you need to wear three masks, and now, you know only this kind of mask. It's all about power. It's not about truth. And and I guess the bottom line here is, if you want to be a person who understands the world around you, you are going to have to become the very best you know, version of truth detector that you can become. But it's on you. You've got to be the one who's willing to do your own research. You've got to be willing to vet your sources. You've got to maintain a healthy sense of skepticism about anything official that is being told to you. <clears throat> I don't know what it is. If it's to distract from you know, the crumbling COVID narrative or if it's to distract from an economy that right now is not looking so healthy you know and and inflation you know racing further and further along maybe maybe a big war is what's needed to snap the american people out of their sense of hey our government is is uh, you know screwing us over or at least they're telling us lies you know this is this is what it's going to take to whip us back into shape i don't know But I'm grateful for the exchange that took place in someone calling out the U.S. government on its uh, circular logic of, well, how can we know this is true? Because we said it. Okay, but where's your evidence? Well, that is the evidence. I mean, it sounds like something a megalomaniac would say. It sounds like something Dr. Fauci would say. I'm the science. You don't question me. Except in this case, we're talking about the lives of millions of people that would be affected by you know, an an unnecessary conflict. And I guess, you know, let me let me just put my cards on the table here. Maybe maybe you're wondering, Brian, you're talking an awful lot like you're a Russian asset. Well, you know, Putin hasn't paid me anything, but uh I can definitely understand the concerns that Vladimir Putin has with NATO expanding right up to his doorstep. Especially after assurances were given over the years that we will not expand NATO to your doorstep. Seems to me that someone is wanting a fight, and I don't think it's Russia. I don't think, you know, whatever problems Russia has and whatever evil is, in, is present in their government, it's probably, you know, they, they have their problems to deal with. They have, I don't know government in any country on Earth that isn't corrupted at some level. But I would trust Putin and I would trust his motivations further than I would trust my own government's. Does that mean you hate America? Not at all. I love my country, in spite of what my government is trying to do to it. In fact, I'm trying to save my country from my government. I'm just saying, Putin is more trustworthy than than my own government. If that makes me a Russian operative, have at it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.